Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Jehocraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 103.9 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Thursday evening where we are set to continue our exploration into the book of Exodus. We have been walking through chapters 3 and 4, and we are more or less still in uh, chapter 4. I think we're going to go back a little bit even into chapter 3 uh, this evening because in our last program, I mentioned that there were three questions posited by Moses that were followed by two requests. And in reality, the third question was never asked. Mea culpa. As I went back over these verses, something jumped out at me. Not only was the third question never asked, but after God promises Moses that he would free his people, Moses begins to play his card a little bit. So what am I talking about here? Well, go back into chapter 3. And what were those two initial questions? Who am I, essentially, right? And then, who are you? And in response to those two questions, God offers Moses some lengthy responses. In response to the second question, of course, I am who I am. And after that lengthy response, does Moses not ask a question, but instead says, well, what do we read in the opening verse of chapter 4? Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. Now, again, there's no question there, but what is there is the word but. Huh? But. Now, this is striking because (laughs) if you're to go down to verse 10, after God gives Moses these extraordinary signs and promises a third, does Moses go with Great energy, excited to do the Lord's will? No, he says, But, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either heretofore or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. So, (laughs) after God promises Moses, while speaking in in the burning bush, oh, by the way, Moses questions, They will not believe me unless you give me a sign. And then after he gives the signs, he says, I am not eloquent enough. And then God reassures him, I will be with you. And then does he go? No. What do we read in verse 13? But, O my Lord, send, I pray, some other person. So (laughs) what is going on here? In verse 1, we have, they will not believe me. To verse 10, I am not eloquent enough. To verse 13. I just don't want to go. So we have a series of excuses which underline what is revealed in verse 13. I just don't want to do it. I just don't want to go. Does this sound familiar? Huh? We'll talk about that in a bit. My friends, God reveals to Moses how he is going to work in his life. And Moses resists. Behind every but God from Moses, there is resistance, huh? Now, the irony is rich because every time we read but God elsewhere in sacred scripture, 
we find salvation. It's almost as if we can turn Moses' words inside out. And as we do, find something that's uh, worth our while. What do I mean? Go to Psalm chapter 49, verses 14 to 15. What do we read there? Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. So there in chapter 49, verse 15, we have, but God, right? And what's on the other side of it when God is acting, intervening, but salvation. Elsewhere we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. Right? Another but God moment where there is salvation. Elsewhere we read, but God who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead through our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and made us sit with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But God equals salvation, right? So the question before us, my friends, is this. When do we say to God, but, right? <laughs> Behind our but is probably a heart that is not open. I mean, my friends, do you really think that what you are saying Whatever excuse you are coming up with, whatever excuse I am coming up with, God does not already know. I mean, God knows us better than we know ourselves, right? And it is for this reason that we need to surrender our but God and open ourselves up to his plan of salvation. Mindful that when we read sacred scripture, we can also find a different kind of but God moment, one that is tied to his richness in grace, one that is tied to our salvation. And something else, my friends, we have to be thinking about the word repentance. Maybe we are someone right now who has been giving a lot of excuses. Maybe we've been saying, oh, they will not believe me a lot. Maybe we have been saying, I am not eloquent enough, a lot. Maybe we have simply said, like Moses, I just don't want to do it, a lot, okay? Repent. Huh? Moses certainly did. This is at the heart of the gospel, is it not? Repent and believe. The good news is at hand. What does that word repentance mean? It comes from the Greek metanoia. Change of heart, change of direction, change of mind right? We are now looking at Jesus, and Jesus says, come, follow me. For every repentant heart is a heart that is not only contrite for their sin and uh, lack of faithfulness, but also firmly resolved to walk the path of Christ, to walk the path of holiness. We may say, but God, like that of Moses, 
But my friends, <laughs> Scripture says, but God, and it is also a different kind of but God, one that we are called to do His will. Huh? And amen to that. All right, something else before we wrap up our reflection into chapter 4. On this whole discussion of doubt and this uh, who am I, who, who are you, what does this verse and these verses resonate with in the New Testament? But our Lord's encounter with Peter. When Jesus asks his followers, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Within that question are those two questions, who am I and who are you? Right? And how does Peter respond with great ambitiousness? You are the Son of God. And so as we claim our identity in Christ, let us echo Peter 2,000 years later, putting Jesus Christ at the center of our life, saying, you are the Son of God. And God certainly will respond with his graciousness and his goodness. All right, with that, let us jump back into these verses, chapter 4, and we will pick up with verse 18. And really, the rest of chapter 4, verses 18 uh, to 31, is Moses' return to Egypt. So we read verse 18. Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me go back, I beg, to my kinsmen in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey, and went back to the land of Egypt, and in his hand Moses took the rod of God. I love that. Took the rod of God. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles which I have put in your power, which I have put in your power, right? God's power now dwells in Moses. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Okay, I want to stop there at verse 21. What is going on there? A lot of the commentaries have a lot to say on that phrase, and certainly it is a question I get asked often, what is this business of God hardening the heart of Pharaoh? Well, a reoccurring theme in the upcoming plague narratives, really of chapters 7 to 12, is this hardening of heart. So, what's going on? Well, in the course of the first five plagues and beyond, Pharaoh hardens his own heart by refusing the demands of the Lord. Beginning with the sixth plague, however, it is said that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and makes him unresponsive to the warnings of Moses. So, inasmuch as Pharaoh hardens his own heart before God is said to intervene, we are led to see that there are two dynamics going on, and this is what the Ignatius commentary picks up here. That first, Pharaoh is no innocent victim, okay? <laughs> he is no innocent pawn manipulated by a higher power, uh, i.e. unaccountable for his actions but is one who has defiantly, my friends, as I think we all know, opposed the Lord's plan from the start. And that ultimately, divine hardening 
is a response to human stubbornness, not necessarily the initial cause of it. Okay, and I think that's what really lies at the heart of best understanding this phrase, harden his heart. So most likely then, divine hardening is a metaphor to describe the withdrawal of God's mercy and grace from that sinner, which could otherwise restrain, in the case of the Pharaoh, his uh, brazen rebellion. You know, elsewhere in sacred scripture, this phrase can be described as giving up or handing over uh, the sinner to follow the, the godless desires of his heart. What are we talking about here, my friends? Well, when you choose against God, what happens? Over time, you begin to develop calluses on your heart, okay? Over time, you become desensitized to the ways of God, which means over time, your heart will become hard to God. Now, I don't know about you, but I am a 44-year-old man who has made some poor choices in life. And I will tell you that (laughs) the consequence of those poor choices led me to a hardened heart. And only by God's invasion of grace was my heart softened. But in that moment, when my heart was softened, I had to be shaken up. And so this is what happens. Our world has to be rattled, if you will. The the heart that becomes hard is not by God's doing necessarily, but by our own doing. Listen, each and every one of us have a free will, okay? And we do because of love, right? I often get the question asked, if God was so good and, and God was so loving, why is there so much evil in the world? Well, it's because God is so good and God is so loving that there is evil in the world. You can't have love without freedom, because ultimately you can't program someone to love you. Freedom must always come from within, not from without. Inherent within every act of love is the free choice to love, so you can never remove freedom. And in this sense, when we choose against God, we are hardening our own heart. We are withdrawing ourselves from God's grace and mercy. You want to live in God's grace and mercy? Then choose to live in God's grace and mercy. We have to remember that while faith is first a gift, yes, absolutely, it is is something that God gives to us and desires to give more to us. It is also an act, and that act is, is trust. Trust is the most concrete act and virtue of faith. It is the response of love. It is the letting go. It is the surrender. Let us bring this back to the story of Moses. What did Moses lack in that exchange with God? Oh, I need a sign. They're they're not gonna, you know, believe me. (laughs) So he gives him two signs and he promises a third and he still doesn't believe him. And how do we know this? Well, he makes up another excuse. Well, I'm not that eloquent in spite of what Stephen says in Acts 7, that he's sound in speech and action, right? I'm not eloquent enough. Excuses. What have we said about this before? What did John Paul II say? St. John Paul II says, an excuse is worse than a lie because it's a lie guarded. What's the lie here? 
Well, the absence of admittance that he didn't trust. And finally, he says, I just don't want to go. That's resistance. Resistance to God's will. God desires what is best for us. And we can't even begin to imagine the greatness of what that is unless we trust. Trust. Okay? Quintessential. So if we don't trust, we are withdrawing ourselves from the treasure trove that is his gratuity, his life, his love, his joy, which should be our joy. Okay? All right. Verse 22. And you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse, let him go. Behold, I will slay your firstborn son. So here, my friends, uh, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22, note it, for the first time in the Old Testament, we have Israel being called, as a nation, God's firstborn son. And that is huge in the bigger picture of things. And it's enough to say this. Israel, as a nation, when described as God's firstborn son, is God's covenant people. What do we mean to say when we talk about covenant? Well, how have we talked about this before? Covenant is just not a compact agreement. This is yours and this is mine, but a family bond. I am yours and you are mine. What does Jesus say? He and me and I and him, right? This consummation of love. This is what God desires. And so this is why God establishes his great covenant. Of course, Moses is the next mediator in line. It's, it really started all the way back with Adam, from Adam to Noah, from Noah to, to Abraham, now Abraham to Moses. And, and to understand Israel as God's firstborn son, that their nation is God's firstborn son, is to understand that they are the descendants to Abraham. Okay? And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will slay your firstborn son. What is meant by the term slave? Now, this is really interesting because, of course, in Egypt, yeah, they're slaves. But elsewhere in the book of Exodus, and this is something we will also develop in in coming weeks and months, slavery can speak to a profound worship. What do I mean? Well, the, the Hebrew for serve is abad or abadah. And it means to work or to serve. Now, the action of the verb may be directed toward an object as when a, a farmer or gardener works the ground. Or the abad or abadah can be a work or service towards a person as when a slave works for his master or a vassal for uh, his overlord. Now, service is also rendered to deities, either to the Lord or to the idols of the Gentiles. I mean, there's many, many verses that speak to this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 3. With respect to idols of the Gentiles, Deuteronomy 4, 28. Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 to 15. There's many other verses. Um, I think what is important for us to see here is that in this connection between work and service, 
and between this service rendered to deities, either to the Lord or to the idols of the Gentiles. The verb often has the sense to worship and is used for the priestly and liturgical service offered to God in the sanctuary. Now, what's interesting about this is that the early chapters of the book of Exodus build this kind of tension with this term as they describe Israel in a tug of war between Yahweh and Pharaoh. On one hand, the people are forced to work for Egypt as slaves. Yet, on the other hand, they are called to worship the Lord by the service of sacrifice. So, the choice between labor and liturgy, ultimately, my friends, is decided by God who frees the the Israelites and brings them to Sinai that they may serve him, which is what but worship him. We think about that word abad or abadah as we equate it with service or slavery. And maybe we just think it's degradation. Well, on one hand, yes, but on the other, God transforms that, elevates it to a more richer, deeper truth. Not degradation, but glorification, deification, if you will. And let me be clear on something here. What I'm not saying is that as Christians and Catholics, we are slaves to God in some negative way. No, we are at the service of God. And we can only truly render proper service to God if we are first worshiping God. What is the Mass? Mass comes from the Latin missio, which best translates as to be sent out, to be sent out, to do what? But the work of God. Why do we define liturgy as God's public work? Because as we enter into union with God in the Eucharist, we then are sent in mission to go out and to do his work, to do his service. So really, How we think about the Eucharist and how we think about the Mass is very much tied to, in this case, Old Testament worship, Old Testament service, and certainly something that I would suggest to you Moses would want us to see. All right, let us continue and wrap up our discussion on chapter 4. We read, verse 24, At a lodging place, on the way to the Lord, met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. Then it was that she said, You are a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. Circumcision, my friends, was what but the sign of the covenant between God and Moses. That was the great sign to be, as we will read here in future chapters, of course. Verse 27, the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him and all the signs which he had charged him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the sons of Israel. Elders, by the way, in the Greek presbyteroi, priests. Verse 30, And Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. So here we have Aaron beginning to perform the signs as high priest amidst the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the sons of Israel, 
and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and what? Worshipped. Worshipped. Incidentally, that closing verse, verse 31, as the Ignatius Commentary highlights, the people believed. What is that? But in anticipation, in anticipation huh, of the response of the Israelites at the climax of the Exodus deliverance, the Lord had visited. The Lord had visited. So ultimately, what we have in chapter 4 is a great anticipation of what is forthcoming in the book of Exodus. I, I thought it was necessary this evening to talk about Moses's internal struggle, as I think it is a struggle we all have to deal with. Um, but yet out from that, he becomes this great chief mediator, right? It should encourage us to see the great men of the Old Testament struggle. It should remind us that, yeah, God can do great things with one simple, repentant heart. And of course, chapter 4 also provided us the opportunity this evening to reflect into some other important verses. As God sent Moses back to Egypt, he does so with a clear message. A, let not your heart be hardened. <laughs> okay. <laughs> like Pharaoh's hardened heart. A heart that was hardened because it was unrepentant. It did not choose God, but chose the pagan idols. Speaking of pagan idols, those are the idols that the Israelites learned to worship. And so, again, in a great anticipation, if you will, of the rest of the book of Exodus, uh, that what was once worshipped, uh, these pagan gods will now be sacrificed. And as they are sacrificed and offered to God, this is the greater worship, the worship of the one true God. Amen. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you.